This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to another Liverpool.com podcast. I am Dan Morgan. I am joined by Oliver Connolly, Christian Walsh and making his Liverpool.com debut today, Mark Wakefield. Mark, how are you feeling? I'm good, Dan. How are you feeling? I am excited, thrilled, um, living off the ecstasy of the past week with Liverpool Football Club and, of course, having you on board as a Liverpool.com writer. Now, a point of order before we start anything. Christian Walsh. You don't want to say about the Thiago thing? I, more, I, I don't think there's anything in it now. I can sort of go on the record now and don't think it's going to happen. I don't think... I can't... I, I don't think... I think it's just an absolute buy-and-driven thing where they're, they're probably desperate to get him off the wage bill. You know, he's a brilliant player. I don't think there's any interest from Liverpool's angle. Not, not like, concrete interest. Imagine having someone like Thiago Alcantara just, like, pulling the strings down the middle. It'd be absolutely incredible. Sadly, there's more chance of me signing for, uh, for Man United. I tell Here's you what, the Chris, what have you got to say about that? Um, do you know what? What I would say about it is that Man United could probably do with someone like me at the minute. Um, <laughs> I can't, I can't believe Liverpool signed Thiago Alcantara. I literally, I mean, there's, there's evidence to prove <laughs> that exact point. I cannot believe it. Um, it took me by surprise. I must admit. Um, I think I was actually. It was it was a genuine kind of I think I was halfway through me cornflakes and it was a proper like you know spit take. It was just like <laughs> what's that? Um do you know when you think it's probably a, a fake account that that's saying it? I didn't see it coming. Um and I know we're gonna talk a lot about Tiago Alcantara, but I did not see that happening in the slightest. I, I thought all of the noises that were coming out of parts of the club uh were, were, were kosher, were le- legitimate. Not saying they weren't anyway, I'm saying things can change. I didn't realise he changed that quickly. And it just goes against everything that we know about Jürgen Klopp, everything that we know about Liverpool's transfer strategy. It, it, it went a little bit quiet, didn't it, for, for, for a few days, weeks, and you feel that that's that, that that's that's done. That's There's there's, a, there's no more of, of the Thiago uh, saga to, to come. And, and it turns out the reason it's gone so quiet is that Liverpool was squiddling away doing their utmost to get an incredible deal where it looks like they're only paying about two quid for them for the, for the next four years. So, um, he was house shopping. No, That's why I went quiet. Well, yeah, <laughs> clearly. Clear gaff. He's probably been in quarantine for two weeks and then he had to sort of get, get on get on the phone to Purple Bricks and, uh, <laughs> and try and find some nice places around Formby. So, um, Thiago's definitely a Formby guy, by the way. Oh, there's, yeah. there's, he's got to live in Formby. He's, he's more Formby than anywhere, isn't he? I just, I'd just like to say other estate agents and areas of Liverpool <laughs> are available. I'll always give a big shout out to South Liverpool because it is, it is the place where you you lived if you were a Liverpool player, circa two thousand and five to two thousand and ten. Um, Ollie, does it go against everything that represents a Liverpool transfer? I know that you've banged the drum for Thiago. I know that you've said that there is there is a, a world in which Thiago can live in this Liverpool team. I get Chris's point entirely in terms of sort of the makeup of the player on on the on the face of it in terms of age profile and stuff. But does it really sort of go against in the value for money sense? 
No, I think it, it, it fits it perfectly. I think it's almost a natural conclusion of the model is that you find a guy who you wouldn't ordinarily be able to get at a price that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to get him. Um, in the piece I wrote a while ago now, just about how he would fit into the model, you look at someone like Rodri, who would be kind of the younger version of the single pivot. Can he be the, the chief creator of a uh, Champions League contender and you're looking at 68 million quid and Liverpool are doing this on a series of basically five million pound loan deals is what they have here and you may be a at the front end knowing there'll be a bit of pain at the back end maybe he doesn't age gracefully you wouldn't imagine his game would because it's not based on necessarily athleticism but it is a bit of short area quickness and things like that so maybe it doesn't age as well in the final year or two years of that contract but you just accept that pain because the first two years mean you have probably the best single pivot in world football and a guy who gives you so much versatility so much creativity and just such an ability to do things that there's no one else on the market at that price point that they would have ever found um, who could have done, who could do the things to them and also do things, the intangible stuff of, of raising kind of the tenor and tone around the club, raising the standards in training. How many other players in world football would raise um, a short passing game sequence around world football would raise that at Melwood right now? What happened? Uh, Ollie, it's a great point. And it's, uh, sorry, Mark, Faux pas from me there on the debut. Um, it's a great it's point right, from Ollie. It's, right. it's a great point from Ollie, Mark, is what I meant to say. In that, you're not just buying a player to go and do a job in centre midfield for X number of years. Say it is for that he signed the contract for. It's what you get around Melwood every day. You know, it's it's. We spoke about this this morning on our call. Think about what that transfer does to the development of Curtis Jones. Curtis Jones is likely to have four years of training with Thiago Alcantara every day. If he can't improve as a player under that sort of model and under that sort of stewardship and guidance, then, you know, there's, there's, there's no excuses for no one sort of not maintaining the grade. If, if players like that can kick on, then Thiago will have a massive part in that, won't he? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is a guy who has been a serial winner pretty much wherever he's been. I mean, at Barcelona, before he went to Bayern Munich, he won the Champions League and La Liga titles. Um, did the exact same thing in uh, in Germany. And then, it's, I think it's just the sheer, like you could see it in the Champions League final when he came off the pitch, like just the sheer force of will to try and urge his teammates to get over the line. And just, it's that kind of just professionalism and desire to win basically like you're bringing a winner you're not bringing somebody in who like pretend like the typical Klopp uh, FSG signing who to develop into the future who may become a star may not and may have some sell-on value maybe you're bringing in somebody who is going to basically keep Liverpool at the top which is where they are right now basically. Chris what did you make of him on, on Sunday one thing that I that stood out for me I mean the, the I think that the red card in the Chelsea game is a massive red herring, if you like. I think we go on to win that game comfortably at our leisure, regardless of the of the red card. But one thing that that really strikes me when I watch him is his ability to miss a man out with a pass. He's he's got no interest in popping the ball off. He's when he passes vertically, he does so by way of sort of missing two or three players out beyond the first line. He really sort of punches and picks his passes and the variance in, in, in the manner in which he can sort of play one touch, two touch, however much he wants. It, it, it was just there, wasn't it? It's laser-like. It's a, it's a different dimension to Liverpool's midfield. And it, it's crazy to think that because I think the one thing people have always 
leveled at Liverpool's midfield as, as a criticism is that there isn't enough uh, incision. There's not enough creativity. It's all a little bit too uh, industrious and workmanlike. And even with Naby Keita and Oxley Chamberlain, you know, because they either a don't play enough on, you know, don't have enough minutes on the field, or b when they do, they don't necessarily translate what they are capable of into that for for the entire the entirety of the time they are on the pitch. It's always been level at Liverpool. Now what you've got is this weird situation where you've actually got somebody who's going to be playing as the deepest midfielder. He's going to be playing as that single pivot, as that number six. But he will he will serve as a number ten in the sense of getting Liverpool up the pitch. He will basically move Liverpool 20, 30 yards up the field, not by driving forward in the way that maybe Keita does, or let's say Oxley Chamberlain would, but basically from a deeper position with, with a pass that can take two or three people out of the game. Now I think the big difference between what he does and what, say, Oxley Chamberlain or Keita do, and this is they are two different sorts of players. Um, that's not to sort of compare them like for like, but with him doing that as with passing, what that means is if you lose the ball, the the transition, you've still got the number six there waiting for him. Whereas if Keita is to get this possessed when he's moving forward, if Oxley Chamberlain's got to get this possessed when he's moving forward, you know, carrying the ball at his feet. If they were to lose the ball, the turnover comes and they're already in midfielder down. As it is, you lose the ball. Now, he's not going to lose the ball very often. There's, there's a big risk aversion, I think, to, to what Thiago does. But if he does lose the ball, then he's going to be exactly in the position that he's meant to be. And it's going to be a lot harder to, to beat them in transition. So what it allows Liverpool to do is progress up the field, but take away any sort of risk about getting counter-attacked in transition. So I, I think that was. I think there's a pass to. It might be Wijnaldum in this. I mean, obviously the second half. That's when he came on. But late in the second half, and it takes Tammy Abraham out the game. It takes Ross Barkley out the game. These are two two guys who've just come on the field, so they're not tired. They should be quite sharp. They've watched the game. They should. They should know what's coming, and they just can't. They can't do anything about it. What I would say, I don't want to be a, a, a Debbie Downer. I don't think it was quite the performance some people were making out i think and about 10 i think he showed his utter utmost class but there's so much more to come from him there's so much more to see from him when he becomes integrated when he figures out how to play in this midfield that it just gives you that 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 taste of what's to come he's, i mean he's also he's also only the type of player you want to see in a game that's 100 mile an hour yeah like i think that's what that's when you'll see his brain sort of really come to the fore and, and you'll be in awe of him. I think the, the, the awe is a, is a massive point there because even as we were referencing around the training ground, there's an aura about him. It's almost like it's not quite Cantona United type stuff, but there's a thing of someone like Andy Robertson will want to impress Thiago because that's Thiago and he's really there. That's really Thiago. You know, there's got to be that kind of vibe going on. You saw it with the infectiousness of the passing in the second half. He will inspire people to ratchet up the tempo of passing. And whether it's a quick game, slow game, he will set the tempo and people will kind of conform to what he decides. No, this is how we have to play this game. And Liverpool have slowly moved from kind of the go-go style of the earliest to this control, possession-oriented style over the last two seasons, more so the last 18 months. They have not had someone who is world-class at setting the tempo. I think Jordan Henderson has been a pretty close facsimile of someone who can operate at that level. I think he is massively underrated as an intensity and tempo setter. We know about the rah-rah stuff, but as a passer, he really can like click through the gears and decide what this game demands, what it doesn't. 
I do think this is just one little jump up, that mini leap from good to all-time great levels. And this isn't saying it now that he's signed for Liverpool. This has been him throughout his entire career. It's why all the great managers have done anything possible to be with him because they know this is a guy who just intuitively understands this game needs this tempo, this pass, this kind of game control at this moment. And you see in the Champions League final where he just knows instinctively, right now we need this, right now we need that. And he'll put out fires for managers and he'll create all kinds of danger going forward. He is he's just... I mean, it's perfect. Now, I'm with Chris. I didn't, it was the excitement and the hype made every pass become, you know, a compilation and what have you. The guy had been there for 24 hours. So he had no idea what the system was, no idea the verbiage. Somehow knew Robbo's name, which I found surprising. Um, and, and from here, I mean, if that is just kind of the entry point, I mean, good Lord, <laughs> in six months. Like, come on. One man who is a, a Liverpool signing, Mark, is, is Diogo Jota. Has all the hallmarks, um, profile, age, experience, but also numbers. And it's something we've focused on on the site. Um, when it broke, we've we've covered pieces around how he compares with Sadio Mane's last season at Southampton in terms of numbers and profile and also sort of coming in off that left side. It's, it's one that, for me, now we, we've made the sign, you're almost a bit frustrated that you couldn't see it before like it was so obvious in the sense that he's such a he's such a Liverpool profile he's such a, a player who Liverpool would look at Michael Edwards would look at it's now a case of being able to work with him um, patiently and also you know seeing those green shoots of, of what the manager and, and his team want from the player yeah absolutely I mean it was a bit of a strange one wasn't it like it just came out of nowhere pretty much I mean all the t- I mean Liverpool have been linked with Adama Traore at Wolves and everyone thought that if we're going to do any business with Wolves, it could be him, even though it would take probably an unlikely fee in this current market. But yeah, it was just a strange one that when you saw it, you're just surprised, like, why are we going for this play? But the more you thought about it, like you said, it just made sense. Like, it's a guy who has a couple of seasons in the Premier League under his belt, got solid numbers, still got room to improve, still only 23, like you say. And that, I mean, I've not, confess I've not watched Wolves a great deal but when I've watched them he has always been pretty much one of their standout performers you know he works hard off the ball he just can play a number of positions like you say a typical Klopp signing and I think the difference it comes with when it, the comparison to Marne is when Marne arrived he was like the main man he was going to be playing every week it was like the start of Klopp's revolution if you like but this time obviously he's got Marnie there has got a lot of other players to compete with, whereas so there's not as much pressure on his shoulders to deliver right away. He can take his time, he can bed into the system, learn the style of play. And I think that will ultimately, I think, will get better rewards going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a stark comparison, Chris, from White Scouts, Jotter in 1920. In all comes, 17 goals, two assists, predominantly from the left. His season total for shots was 92, dribbles 256, he wins 793 duels, which is impressive and important, uh, ball recoveries in the opposition half, 129, and his XG is 16.72, now you compare that to Mane, scores against his last season against South, in, uh, at Southampton, I should say, uh, scores 14, has 8 assists, 97 shots on target, 296 dribbles, 1,080 duels, 159 ball recoveries in the opponent's half, XG of 4.21. It's the stats that are familiar, but it's also the type of stats that are jumping out. Those sort of defensive from the front stats, which, 
like I say, when you're doing the drill downs, a Liverpool data analysis team will be a lot more in-depth and complex than, than me pulling out a few white scout stats. But at the, at the same time, you can see sort of the identity of why they've identified him and got him. Absolutely. And there's a, there's another thing here where you, you find in Liverpool are, are doing business with, with, with clubs and managers that have a particular profile. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got Hansi Flick, obviously. I mean, Thiago's, Thiago's been under a lot of very good managers Andy Kovac, but um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so he's done that. Um, you've got Diogo Jota now, who's, who's pretty much had the past four seasons one with Porto and three at Wolves with um, with, with Nuno. You even look at Takumi Minamino, and he's had Jesse Marsh, who's obviously somebody who people are really interested in. I think we're starting to see here, you know, they obviously were interested in Timo Werner and he had the season under Nagelsmann. I think what we're seeing now is that because Liverpool's style is so defined, that, and because Liverpool can essentially allure, you know, a lot of good players from, from world football, it's easy to sort of look at a player and then say, well, What's he been playing as? How's he been playing? Who's he been playing under? And can we translate that? Now, Nuno and Klopp are two completely different managers. They play two completely different systems. One thing they both believe in is, is the idea of, of, of having your forwards pressing the front, especially the two either side of Jimenez when, when you're Wolves. You've seen basically, even against Manchester City, the Dapper Dents and Neto, they're pretty much just the next jotter they're the next one off off the conveyor belts where they'll press, they'll harry, they'll um you know they'll, they'll recover the ball a lot in the in the final third. Um, so yeah, the, the, there is definitely a, a a type, and I mean I'm a, I'm absolutely delighted about Jota. I think I'm almost as excited for Jota as I am for Thiago, just because Dios is someone who I've just just from completely cursory looks at you know. XG and, and and those numbers, someone who stood out as somebody who is ready to take the leap. His numbers should be better than they are, but I don't as we know, underperformance isn't necessarily a sign of, of a poor player. It just means that hopefully the regression, the positive regression to the mean will be coming, which means that Liverpool have basically signed their uh, a potentially 16, 17 goal a season, league season player, a player who can fit in across the front three. And ultimately, is is someone different? Uh, I feel like we're looking at the, the Mane comparison. I completely agree with that. But I think what you've you've got to notice with Mane is how Mane has has developed at Liverpool. Mane came to Liverpool, if we remember, as a left winger, and then he got moved to the right for a season because that was the way it was. And then he got moved back out to the left. He's played up front a little bit. So what we're going to see with Jossard is, although we might sort of I suppose you could say he's the, the backup to Mane. I think we'll see him getting a lot of minutes leading the line. I think he'll. I think he might be the number. I think he might be the number nine in a, in a four-two-three-one. I think you look at his shot locations. You look at the way he he pounces. I think one thing that Liverpool do lack, and we lacked it a little bit against Chelsea. I think it was Robertson put a brilliant ball across the face of the box in the first half, and because of the way Firmino operates, and not a criticism, it's just the way he is. But he was sort of he wasn't quite there in terms of lurking. I think someone like Jota has got that little bit more instinct in terms of a, a striking capacity. So I think we'll see a lot of I think we will see Jota sort of shadow Mane if, if, if you will. Um I think he will predominantly sort of give Mane a rest and play him off the left. But I can see him picking up where Firmino 
Um, you know, if Firmino's not playing, I think he'll be playing, and I think we'll possibly see a four-two-three-one with, with with the four of them, which is which is very exciting because ultimately, you look at that team now, and with with some very clever accounting from Liverpool, basically the dominant team of eighteen nineteen, uh, the first half of it, which played that four-two-three-one, you've essentially replaced Shakiri with Jota, and you could argue you've you've basically brought in Thiago as a bonus. Which is just an incredible position to be, and um, you know it, what a difference a week makes, basically, because it just completely gives Liverpool an entirely new dimension. Both of them. If anything, Ollie, it's a reminder not to sleep on Liverpool in terms of transfer activity. You know, it's it's Jamal Lewis and Ismaili Assad, and all of a sudden it's Thiago Alcantara, yeah. Costa Smikas, and. Uh, Diogo Jota and, and it's you know we can have the conversations around FSG and and strategies and stuff like that but Jota came out of nowhere on Friday absolutely nowhere and it was it was very reminiscent of Fabinho in you get a you get it you know a, a tweet saying Liverpool are interested and, and three three four hours later he's in the shirt near enough yep. yeah I mean it went from initial interest to contract signed in like four hours I mean done um i i find it interesting that I, I think he was brought not so much as he's going to play this position he's a long-term guy for this position just looking at his player profile he can be anything they want him to be i don't think there is a a kind of player profile that means he's going to play on the left play through the middle i think it's all of them like chris said i think it's having i think we've touched this before in past podcasts positional versatility within the game so klopp doesn't have to bring on certain players with certain styles, but he has a select group of players who he can toggle to three different formations, but within a game, depending on what he wants to go to, which they haven't had without having Shakiri there, where they can go to the 4-2-3-1, but then bounce back to the 4-3-3 if need be. Um, I think that's why someone like Ox can be so important for them, because they can move to three or four different looks, whether it's narrower, wider, whatever they want, just based on what the opponent's doing, but then bounce back once they feel they're in a comfortable position, which is something I think they lacked last season is maybe getting a little bit of the one-dimensional this is how we attack this is our style and not having the the pieces in place to be able to switch things up within a match um on a possession to possession basis so that's where i think he's he's really excited like chris said chris said that the most impressive thing in the numbers you cited down was the the pressure numbers because their system is funky you shouldn't be getting as many recoveries in the opponent half the way that they press it isn't a full-out press you don't get the help and the shield of everyone else where you can kind of inflate your numbers a little. It really is just him and another guy <laughs> running around at the top there trying to maybe will something to happen. So I, just the, the numbers alone, the player profile seems like this is about as close to a nailed on home run as they could get. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Um, well, the other big talking point from the weekend, I guess, Mark, was Fabinho at centre-back. It was... Um, it was it was an interesting case, if you like, I think, of sort of being reminded that, yeah, Liverpool are putting a midfielder in a position that isn't his own, but by virtue of that, they're possibly gaining a player who, if he spends a season there, would, would arguably end up in a Premier League eleven. Um that's that's the reality of the performance, that's the reality of the player. And it's also sort of for me the reality of just what Klopp and his team have done in terms of how this team plays. You know, the fact that they can sort of chameleon-like mould into different positions by virtue of the fact that they are just so compact on the pitch. The Christian Walsh Blanker, as it's otherwise known. Um, they, it's it's a case of, the, you know, the, 
they're more sort of entwined with situations on the pitch and, and where to be at a certain point as opposed to, you know, you play in this position and you are said midfielder, you are said defender. The, the manner in which they sort of play constantly means to me that they, they're they able to sort of make those transitions a lot easier. I'm not sure whether you'd agree or not. Um, definitely. I mean, we know Klopp likes a player who is capable of playing in multiple positions, certainly in the forward line, but we don't normally think of it as in the midfield and possibly going back into centre-back. I know Joe Gomez is another classic example of he can play centre-back and right-back. Obviously, centre-back is his preferred position, but he is versatile, and that's another reason why Klopp favours him so much. But just the way Fabinho played on Sunday, I just it was literally like having a world-class central midfielder, which he is, at centre-back. I mean, the passes he was dishing out, I mean, there were a couple of times where I thought, He's going a bit too far into midfield. He's going to get caught out on the counter-attack. And we thought when he got lined up with Timo Werner on the basically a one-on-one that we thought, oh, here we go, he's going to get caught out. But he just showed his class from just didn't rush in, didn't dive in, didn't make a rash challenge. He just stood his ground and made basically said to Werner, what have you got? What have you got for us? And, well, Werner didn't have the answer. He just calmly dispossessed him and then got, got the foul and just won the ball back. And that just shows the composure as well as the quality that he has. Ollie, I don't want to dig anyone out here, but here's a hypothetical for you. If on Sunday that situation that arose arose in terms of the injuries to Joe Gomez and Joe Matip and there was a a stone-cold, not-played-a-minute football, Dejan Lovren coming in, would you have been slightly more concerned than Fabinho at centre-back? Yeah, again, it's about presence and aura, right? Fabinho just seems cool, calm. I got this, everyone step out my way. And Lovren is a bit more haphazard. I think, say. yeah, it, I, I think where I'm sort of going with it is the sense of people look at having, having in inverted commas, to play a midfielder at centre-back as a negative, as sort of a disparity to your squad strength. What, where I'm going with it is you don't get the player who... A four-choice centre-back is four-choice for a reason. And what that means is he, he doesn't play a lot of football. Mm-hmm. So to just drop a player in for Chelsea away who doesn't play a lot of football is problematic. And I don't think people really sort of caveat that when they say just go and buy a fortress centre-back. Yeah. At sometimes, at times, can it be a benefit that you've got a player who's playing regularly but is also able to drop back? You know, he's not sort of coming in cold. Yeah, I, I thought they did some really interesting things to kind of help him out, particularly in the build-up play. We noted this morning, and I'll probably write something later this week where it makes it a bit easier, people can visualise it. But in the build-up play, they would essentially shuffle him into his preferred spot. When he drops from the sixth roll, he likes to split the two centre-backs, and Henderson likes to normally shuffle to the right side of the centre-backs. In this game, knowing that Lampard would probably stick someone on Henderson to try and shut that down. They said, okay, Naby, you go and take up the spot on the right side of a back three. We'll shuffle Fabinho along. So he's in, in his visual awareness and his spatial recognition, he's in the spot he would ordinarily be, be in if he was trying to break down play. Van Dijk, mm-hmm. you shuffle to the left side and we'll push the fullbacks on as normal. So a lot of the game for him, given that they started, they're completely their own tempo. I thought they just dominated the game in a way that was uh, unusual and uncommon for them. Just go on the road like that and be like, no, that we're bossing it our style. 
he was basically sat in the similar spots he would be ordinarily. As like Mark said, him stepping out from the back, shaking up his normal positions. It, it was not an alien feeling to him. And I thought they, they built a really smart game plan around that idea you're saying of, well, let's just put him in spots where he's comfortable. Let's see how it fits into the overall kind of defensive structure rather than, as you're saying, chuck someone in cold, whether it's one of the young lads or if we had Lovren back in the day. Um, I, I thought it was really smart, a really smart blend of just an individual player's talent and the coaching staff being like, how do we kind of build something a bit smarter out of this and make almost take advantage of the fact we've got this rare distribution from that centre back spot? I thought it was really creative. I don't, I don't I, think I, we should forget, you know, with Lovren for example, but let's just say he's the the catch all for a fourth three centre back. Um, you know, this all comes from the fact that Lovren didn't play for, I think it was two months, two and a half months in the league. I think he missed about ten games through injury and then he was on the bench and then he comes in against Watford and Liverpool lose 3-0 and that wasn't necessarily because he's a bad defender I mean people will, will, will dispute that I'm sure the comments on the YouTube will be telling me that he is a very bad defender but what I would say is that you know sort of he's certainly not as bad as that he showed at Vicarage Road that, that evening and a lot of that can I think can be attributed to the fact that he hadn't played for, for two two and a half months you know he sort of sat on the bench um and, and you know, to be fair, let's let, let's sort of be fair. He comes in against Man City, I think it was in, in eighteen nineteen, um, after not starting at all in that season, and you know keeps a clean sheet, albeit you know Mares misses a penalty. Um, so you know it, it it's it can work both ways, but I think I think the big thing for me is positions. Don't look at the positions necessarily and what they would be be labelled on a fantasy football game or on Football Manager. Look at their attributes. You know, ultimately, yes, Andy Robertson is, and Trent Alexander-Arnold are fullbacks. But what you have there in Trent is is, is a deep lying playmaker in, in midfield. He's basically a number six who shuffles slightly, slightly out wide. Um, in Andy Robertson, you've essentially got what is a an old school number eleven, if you will, sort yeah. of who, who can hug the touchline, get inside. They they go down on on, on whatever game as a, as a defender left, defender right. But ignore all of that. Basically, you've you've got a guy there in Fabinho, and and look, I I put my hands up. I I was worried about him with Werner. I thought the pace sometimes. I think sometimes when Fabinho, you know, with the pace he can struggle when he gets turned back around. It looks like he's running with a parachute opening on his back. But I think that they handled it really well, and he made sure that he didn't have too much space behind them. There was they were keeping a high line, but it never once was he in a foot race with Werner, and that was a that was a massive sort of. Um, that that was a massive plus from from Klopp and, and his training staff as well. So yeah, you know, ultimately Fabinho, yes, he is a midfielder, but he's got the attributes to play as a as a, as a centre back in a in a Jurgen Klopp side. There's some there's some uh, Premier League tunnel vision there too, because in the Monaco days, I mean, he played right back. Then there was games and systems in which they played three at the back, and he did play as a centre back because they they had like nine attacking players. They all went forward. He sat at the back. So. As you're saying there, Chris, it, it's more about the attributes to positional space. I will confess that him one-on-one against Werner, the, the two in the first half, I did not expect that. I didn't think he had the kind of the nous and the sound to just poke it away to ride it the way he did. Uh, that was a bit, that was surprising. I knew he had the kind of positional awareness, like we're saying, to stuff it out before it became an issue. But to just face someone up, body up, and then make the right play was kind of, that was, that was unusual, I thought. I mean, we'll just move on from... Um... Not the game itself, but from the Fabino performance. Um, Mark, it was it was consummate Liverpool in many ways. It's the the performance we've want, wanted to see since I'd argue Atletico Madrid at home. 
and you could argue we got it that night. We just didn't get the result really. But they sort of, for me, it was a, it was a reminder to the world of who they are. You know, the 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 trophies they've won over the last two years don't come unless in games like that when it really matters when people are sort of throwing a potential banana skin at you that you're able to then turn around and say, well, you know, you all need a little reminder of what this team is and where the levels are at. And I think there was no greater compliment paid than by Frank Lampard, to be honest, who really committed to nothing throughout the game. You know, he, he didn't have a go at Liverpool. He didn't come out swinging like he did at Anfield in July, which I think in itself is a really interesting thing. But it just felt all the time that there was just a semblance of control from Liverpool that was never going to be broken. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, coming from a fan who's watched them play Chelsea away for, many, for a number of years now, it was, I took greatest satisfaction from watching them basically just dismantle Chelsea in their own backyard. I know it wasn't, be, wasn't the same as if a full fans were there, but it still felt nice to watch them basically just dismantle them completely, especially second half. Um, going on to your point about like reminding people who we are, I don't think anybody really had any doubt of how good this Liverpool team are. It's just recent like transfers for some reason seem to dominate override actual quality like just because Chelsea have signed and splashed the cash they're all of a sudden named as potential title contenders and that may well prove to be the case we'll have to wait and see on that but let's not forget this Liverpool team only what they picked up 99 points last year 97 the year before you know quality speaks for itself there's no doubt about how good this team are and the fact that we have I mean maybe they have, maybe they went there with a the point to prove they got a bit of stick from obviously conceding three goals against Leeds um, that was a very different type of game with a new, newly promoted side basically out there to show them who they're about. This game was, there was much more on the line. It was almost like, well, from the outside looking, potentially a title battle early, even even in the second game of the season. But it was just Liverpool just showing how good they are. And Chelsea, like you say, Lampard set his team up. I think he was just too scared. I think he was just scared of, like, get, we scored five against them in July. He was scared of that happening again. Uh, just, yeah, just, it was very like say, Marie, it was very Mourinho-like with his tactics, which I thought very bizarre. It's very Mourinho-like and hanging his goalkeeper out to dry. I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> and and after the big one on the sideline. Yeah, yeah. God knows why. You got to back it up, Frank. You got to back it up. <laughs> I mean, Chris, he does. I mean, there's a lot of Chelsea in that game that is just you can't quite put your finger on why they they don't come out and have another go. And you can you know you can make the argument of of sort of Liverpool's. Liverpool's presence and, and stuff like that that I've talked about. But, I mean, I'm staggered, for instance, there's no jury at half-time just to get them up the pitch. I'm, I'm staggered that there isn't a, a plan to, to do more around sort of between the lines beyond where Henderson's playing. It just all felt like a bit of nothing, you know. I mean, can you even cite the fact that there's no crowd there? Because if there was, he'd have been maybe more pressured to, to come out at Liverpool a little bit more. And what, do we, what do you think was his game plan because even at half time I sort of still can't find what he planned to do in my head so I think the worst thing that I, mean, I think it's twofold I think the worst thing that he did in that entire game was come back out at half time and decide to play 4-3-2 and I feel that's because the pressure was almost off by by implication of the fact that they were down to 10 men so now he wants to go and take the game to Liverpool with 10 men now he wants to be plucky Chelsea with a man less but the, the problem with playing a three-man midfield and, and two up top was the fact that, as, as we saw, Liverpool absolutely killed them for the first 10 minutes down down the flanks. Mm. Absolutely. Robertson, 
and and um, and Trent were getting we're getting moments. Obviously, the first goal comes from a nice little bit of play from uh, Salah and, and Firmino, um, and, and he and he changes it too late. I think it's I think it's a, a an expectation thing. So the expectation is on is sort of on Chelsea at the start, and he, he plays cautious. He wants to play a cagey. Once the expectations off, he, he goes hell for leather. He throws it all all you know sort of. You know, let, let's go for it now. The, the, the worst thing we can do is go out in a, in a, in a blaze of glory, and obviously the two 0 down within within um, ten minutes of the, of, of the second half. I think as well, what it is looking at, at Chelsea, it's very much, and this reminds me a little bit with much higher quality players of Liverpool with the first summer under FSG, where they've signed players. They've signed players who are available. They've signed players who've obviously been offered to them. They've signed players because they're, they're good players. They're players who will improve them. They're players who probably check out well on the, on the stats, where we know they do, the likes of Werner and, and Abbott. But there's no actual plan on how these are all going to work. And I think that that's a big thing where he doesn't he doesn't understand how Werner and Havertz are meant to play together. He doesn't know what Mason Mount's doing in that lineup. He doesn't really know how, the, how that midfield's lining up. He doesn't. You, you've got Alonso there, but, but but basically you can't have Alonso and then have have, have, have on the left hand side. That that's just a, an absolute recipe for disaster. So I think what what Lampard has got there is is a team full of individuals, and it is a bit a bit cliche, but a team full of individuals with no real coherent strategy on how to play them. You look at um, there was a lot on social media after the the, the win over Brighton for Chelsea on Havertz's position. He's basically playing as a right winger. He's essentially playing as, as what the account used to play for Liverpool. And that's just not how it's his game. I know he was a little bit more central in, 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 in the game against Liverpool, but what you've got there is a, a load of shiny new toys on Christmas morning and just sort of, you know, line them up however you want, Frank. And he, he, I don't think he really knew. And, and, and I think long term, I'm not sure he'll know how to do that. He's got a lot of parts there to fit in. Where does Zayac come in? Where does Pulisic come in? How do you get those? How do you get Pulisic, Zayec, Havertz, and Werner, Kante, Jorginho, Kovacic, Barkley, whoever, into a, into a coherent front six? I just don't think you do. Um, so I think on, on on Sunday it was it was simply a case of being caught between between the two. Does he go for it with all of these brand new toys that he's got, or does he basically try and grind out the 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 the, 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 the draw, maybe a victory? And ultimately, he didn't either. And once the once the red card came, he just absolutely lost his head and decided, "Right, okay, we'll go, we'll we'll go and try and win this now," um, and, and completely exposed themselves. You compare that to what Sheffield United did against Aston Villa on Monday night with ten men from oh, I think it was like the, the, the first ten minutes. Uh, Johnny Egan gets sent off. All right, they lose one 0 but they're so well drilled defensively, and there's such a plan behind that. Whereas, you know, Lampard's got 15 minutes there at half time to basically collect his thoughts and say, right, this is how we're going to basically do it. And within 10 minutes of the second half, he's torn it up and that's to start again. Ollie, I've given you the last word on this because you, you've written something on it today. What do you think? In terms yeah. of performance in Chelsea, sorry. Yeah, I think the, the big thing for me was almost was body language. Um, that's what I've written about today. There's that thing I discuss all the time in the show about performance of champions and, and kind of the age old thing of scrappy performances away from home and, you know, the crowd's hostile and all that. And I just think it's nonsense. It's it's kind of left in those early Fergie years. Sometimes those those Wenger Arsenal teams didn't play up to kind of the champagne football style away from home. Now I think it is 
in a, in a super club era where 100 points is the target. You've got to get 100 points to win the league. That's that's the, the target at the start of the year. It is going to uh, the new the new shiny toys, as Chris said, the new contender. Everyone's talking about them and saying, no, sit down. Kind of those mid Fergie teams. Remember, they just used to go away to people and just punish them. They would just pummel them. It would be 3-0. Yeah, they would they would roll into town. It would be ruthless. They would play with swagger and ego, and they'd be like, "We are Manchester United, and this is going down." But they would also wait for the team to beat themselves. Yes, and that's, and that's they, exactly what Liverpool done yesterday. And uh, but they would turn up with their game. That this is how we play. This is our style. We know we're the best. We know we're a class above you. Everyone can talk about you in the press. We do not care. This is our style. And you come out here and you try and throw stuff at us, and we do not care. And I, I was blown away by that. That attitude was there instantly. And I think the club will be so happy about the hunger and the desire. And it looked like the Crystal Palace game just before they won the league. It was that kind of performance of the rattling of the ball, the crispness of the passing, the eagerness in the pressing. Every single check mark you would have is, does this team still have the fire? Are they still hungry? It was all there. And to go and impose it on a team like that with all the talk and all the Lampard nonsense and all the new pieces, it was a genuine championship. Like, no, we are another level above any of this nonsense, this kind of second tier. It's us and City and you can all sit down until we play each other. I felt a lot better just really quickly, and I'm sure you know. Sort of let me know if if you didn't, but I felt a lot better even at nil nil than I ever did at the four three against Leeds. Oh yeah, I this morning. They were just picking their moment. They they were so comfortable, but not in a in a hesitant way. They were setting the tempo. They understood what the game was, and they just biding their time. They were in complete control of a game against. If you just look at the the eleven Chelsea had out there, it should have been a back and forth game. They had talent on the pitch, but this complete command of the game, I thought. Okay, um, quick fire to to end. We are going to base this week's Liverpool.com survey in line with the the structured deals for Diogo Jota and Thiago Alcantara on Liverpool's most value for money signing under FSG. So be sure to check out our pieces and there'll be a link in there to the survey to pick your very own um, from a multiple choice of seven. I'm going to go around the room first, Jensen, offer you your own pick before I read you out uh, the rest of the, the options. Mark, who would you go for? Uh, so I asked me this before, and I said, it's a very tough one. But you could obviously go for the obvious ones like James Milner, free transfer, Joel Matip as well, Andy Robertson for £8 million, I think it cost from Hull, Joe Gomez as well. I'm almost half inclined to go for Suarez just because he was, I think it was about £22, £23 million, I think, at the time. And yeah, you might say that. Like, oh, that's still quite a lot of money. But you look at just look how good he was. I mean, he was the best footballer arguably on the planet behind Messi, maybe even on level with Messi for like a season. And you know, no one in certainly in the Premier League and arguably in Europe could get anywhere near him. I mean, obviously the only blemish against him there really is the fact that we didn't win a trophy while he was here. Um, so in that aspect, I just have to go for him. But obviously, there's honourable mentions to the ones I've mentioned before. Chris, what about you? Well, it's not Victor Moses um, <laughs> <laughs> or Thiago Alori. Uh, I, I'm going to go for Sadio Mane. And I, yeah, I, 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 think, I, think there's, I think there's in that you, you want to sort of stay clear in that because, yes, he's the person who sort of kicks off the clock revolution, and we all know that. But I think there's something else with the Mane thing, and it's also about the situation and, the, and, and, and what Liverpool were facing at the time. They just lost the Europa League final, they're not in Europe whatsoever. 
you've got 30 million to spend on an attacker and you absolutely have to get this right people were cast your mind back four years people were absolutely they were nearly marching to anfield because liverpool weren't going for henrik mkhitaryan and man united got mkhitaryan instead and obviously Klopp played with uh, Klopp used to manage mkhitaryan what are liverpool doing how can they do this how can they go and get this fella who's been okay at best at southampton they had one shot basically to, to get that race and they absolutely nailed it so for 30 million pounds it becomes easier when you've got salad the year after when you're in europe it becomes easier when you know you've got the money and you you know what you're getting in version of van Dijk. in terms of sadio mane it's, it's, it's a massive it's a massive gamble for liverpool and one that does genuinely sort of sliding doors moment change change the direction of the, of, of the football club because he's he, he, he's single you know he's the single most important sign in that sense because he completely changed what Liverpool were all about. Ollie, mine would be would be Mane too. Sort of just for what he came to represent at the time, he, he changed everything, as Chris said. Have you got a different one? Uh, I'll go with Coutinho, if you guys are taking Mane. I think, was it, 8 million? They sold yeah. him for 140, which seems to still it's be rising. Challenge. It might wind up being 215 by the time <laughs> the book's written in, in 10 years' time. And which, at the time, by the way, for, for the bobbly-haired lad from Brazil, was an overpay really you know even though he would go on to have kind of an eight month stretch where he was a genuine ballon d'or contender and it, you felt just like the floor fell out of the team when he when he was taken away and it was just classic that every time we get a player reaches this level one the spanish giants comes in and says oh all right then we'll have that one shall we um it, and the floor just fell out but obviously it, it, it catapulted allison van dyke and this team to just go to a, a different stratosphere he would not have played in this team in this style in a title winning season he was just a different type of player um but still the, the level he reached for that kind of money and then what the resale value was i think that that would win it for me i'd say the Coutinho era for me that was like sort of my press box era if you will um 2014 to 20 2018 i suppose so i he was the source of the one player i got to, to see it like close quarters pretty much every week in one way or another and he was he was mesmerizing like even you know sort might of, be the best pure footballer they've ever yeah. had yeah absolutely the technique was unreal and i remember you know bolting away for example in the fa cup no one remembers it but it's 90 minutes and he kills one in off the off the underside of the bar 30 yards out he's just an incredible footballer who could i think the spartak moscow home game as well you know he scores the penalties to start with but he liverpool wins 7-0 and he's absolutely unplayable uh, yeah. great great lost game that in liverpool's history Oh, just they have to win they have they have to win so i think they have to win maybe a draw but they definitely have to get a positive result the football that night is the football is incredible like it's you, you you could watch that game every day and not get sick of it but then a week later they play alan pardew's west brom at home in the league and draw nil nil <laughs> and i think it was those type of games that made Jürgen klopp realize do you know what there's something not quite right here that it'll work in these spares but if we want the consistency and i think also just really quickly on, on you know, in terms of value for money as well and what things represent on a wider scale i think Coutinho was a massive thing in the sense of it's okay it's gonna be okay you know we lost alonso and we lost suarez and it all went to absolute pot but honestly and, and you know but trust me it's gonna be okay we know what we're doing we know that the the collective is bigger than the individual here it's not about who's the biggest name and the brightest player it's about how it all fits into the system and it's sort of it it, it, it i think it it established a new level of trust in Klopp and fsg for, for a lot of supporters 
Okay, brilliant. That's been the Liverpool.com podcast for this week. We hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you to Oliver Connolly, to Christian Walsh and to Mark Wakefield on his debut. Uh, we've got absolutely tons of content. Tiago, Jota, transfers, match, anything you want, get to Liverpool.com. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo.